Hey everyone, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. I'm your host, Chris Case, and this is the best of 2020. What a year it's been, eh? In so many ways, 2020 was one big challenge. Sometimes big, sometimes small, but always a bit more challenging. The same goes even for this humble podcast. But through it all, we stayed connected, virtually, most of the time, across time zones, across international borders, and despite waves of pandemic disruptions. We did it all to bring you what we think are some incredible conversations with exceptional minds in the worlds of physiology, medicine, nutrition, sports psychology, and of course, cycling throughout. Who, specifically, will we hear from today? First, there's world-famous physiologist Dr. Inigo San Milan, who also happens to be the head of the training staff of UAE Team Emirates, the team of Tour de France winner Tade Pogacar. We'll hear from the coach of America's most talented cyclists, Jim Miller. A best-of episode wouldn't be complete without the incomparable Dr. Steven Seiler. We'll also hear from outspoken, sometimes sassy, Sebastian Weber of Inside. We'll get words of wisdom from the legend, Joe Friel. We'll hear from Fast Talk Labs contributor, Julie Young, and we'll catch up with some incredible athletes, including climbing sensation, Sepp Goose, and national champ, Ruth Winder. All those guests and many more today on Fast Talk. You'll notice several themes that come out in this episode, a function of the fact that we kept revisiting these topics throughout the year. One thing Fast Talk has taught us, and we hope you as well, is that by discussing these topics with intelligent guests, we develop a better understanding of where training, science, and practice converge and where it's headed. Some of the themes we'll touch upon include leaving complexity out of your intervals, the execution of workouts and using feeling versus data, using ranges versus specific numbers, and much more. The Fast Talk team has enjoyed every minute of creating this show for you. Likewise, we've loved sifting through our collection of episodes from the past year to gather the best of 2020. Thank you for your continued support. We couldn't do it without you. So here's to 2021 and a return to bike racing for all of us. Let's hope and let's make you fast. What a year. Of course, there were many good things that happened in 2020 as well. Among them, we launched Fast Talk Laboratories, our new coaching, education, and community program. In just a few weeks, we will be announcing some exciting new features and services that we'd like you to enjoy. So why not sign up for our free listener member level? We'll get our weekly newsletter where we announce new offers and get access to full transcripts of every episode, including today's, our best of 2020 review. Join us at fasttalklabs.com. In this clip, we're going to hear from Dr. San Milan. This is from episode 109 on the metabolic cost of your rides. Dr. San Milan takes us sort of inside, deep inside the human physiology about the metabolic uh, flux that's taking place in, in, in an individual, but the differences between an amateur and a pro and, and some of the molecular mechanisms that are that are affected here. Trevor, tell us why you chose this episode. 
This is an episode that I had been wanting to do for years. It's a question that I, I keep re-asking myself, and, and I'm going to say I still don't know where I stand. I keep going back and forth that sometimes I feel like, yeah, uh, when a pro and an amateur go out for a zone two ride, you're getting the exact same adaptations. There are other times where it just seems the evidence points the opposite, that it has very different effects on them. So it was fun getting somebody as knowledgeable as Dr. Inigo San Milan on to have this discussion with, uh, to go into a lot of the physiology of it, and, and even to get into reactive oxygen species, which is not what you would expect to discuss when you're talking about Zone 2 rides. All right, let's hear from Dr. San Milan. What is the difference that that 300 watts, even though it's the same relative intensity, what is the difference for the the pro versus the the amateur when one is up close to 300 watts, one's at at 180 watts? What's the different effects on their engine? You need to produce a lot more ATP, right, to to run that engine, right, at that speed or at that power output. Um, And for that, you need to mobilize different metabolic sources. So Elite athlete is extremely good at oxidizing carbohydrates and even fatty acids at these intensities. Whereas the amateur athlete at those intensities um, of 300 watts, they, they're not they're 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 not oxidizing fat at all, and everything is uh, glycolytic, and therefore they produce a lot of lactate. Uh, so for for those people that the same metabolic uh, state, it, it it would be more at 180 watts, for example, as we could referring to the 180 watts, for example, right? That's where they would be at the same metabolic level. But if you want to go from 180 watts to 300 watts, you're going to have to um, mobilize um, a lot more energy. Or you're going to have to produce, uh, I mean, to oxidize a lot, a lot more pyruvate for energy, and you're going to produce a lot more lactate. But you need to oxidize that lactate. And this is the capacity, and everything happens in the mitochondria and uh, this is why these, these elite athletes have an amazing mitochondrial function, which can oxidize the pyruvate, and they can oxidize also the, 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 the fatty acids, and also produces, they produce largest amount of lactate as a result of uh, pyruvate oxidation, but they oxidize lactate very well within the mitochondria, mainly, as well as in adjacent mitochondria, and in also as low well, switch muscle fibers. So I, I get with the amateurs that if they go up to 300 watts, it's very different. But, but I guess the, the question here is, if they're both in their zone two, if they're both riding at aerobic threshold, is it the same thing? Yeah, I would say so. Metabolically speaking, I would say it, it is the same metabolic stress or the same metabolic situation. Even though with the pro, we're, we're looking at a situation where they are requiring a lot more energy. They're, they're requiring a, a higher oxygen consumption to produce their higher wattage. Well, but this is what I, I would like to, in, in my opinion, I, I don't look at oxygen consumption anymore. I, I look more about the metabolic level. I think we, we've been for, for decades talking about oxygen. Um, and from at least what we're seeing with muscle biopsies, we're correlating with uh, looking at genomics, metabolomics, proteomics. We're looking at transcriptomics. We're looking also at even exosomes. Um, and we, we, we're not at, you know, like opening new areas where we're looking specifically at a very cellular level. And, and we already see that there's little correlation with oxygen consumption within the same group. So 
I, 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 that's what I, I, I would not like to get stuck in the oxygen consumption, right? I will, I will, I think it's more about that. What happens at the cellular level, right? Uh, so those athletes, they, they, they have a much higher capacity to mobilize fuels, whether it's uh, from carbohydrate source, whether it's from fatty acid source, or whether it is from a uh, um, lipid, from uh, I mean from amino uh, amino acids, right, or fatty acids. So and and for that the mitochondria is it, it, it's it's key for that. So um, to at 300 watts, obviously the the muscle contraction force it's much higher uh, than what it is at 180 watts. So you you require more more substrate. Right, um, and uh, and those substrates are more 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 carbohydrate oxidation. You need you need more 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 fatty acids, and you need also more um, amino acids as well to produce ATP. Because at the end of the day, metabolic stress is about ATP uh, synthesis rate as well. Um, but you know, an, an an athlete who doesn't have the same capabilities can only do that at 180 watts, for example, if that athlete wanted. To, so there would be a, a, at, a, at a similar uh, homeostasis, if you will, level, but with lower fat oxidation, lower carbohydrate oxidation, and lower amino acid oxidation. And that's, that's the capacity that the well-trained athlete has. I know it's complicated, but... Uh, um, it is an interesting question. That, that's very complicated. But going back... To, to what you were saying about the the substrates, they're both in their their zone too. The pro to generate that three hundred watts compared to the hundred and eighty watts from the the amateur, that pro is going to be burning a lot more calories per minute. How are they doing that? Are they still are both going to be relying equally on on fat versus carbohydrates, or are you going to see a different reliance? Yeah, in total number. Again, the, the elite athlete has a much higher capacity to burn or, or, or oxidize carbohydrates or fatty acids or amino acids. Therefore, they can afford to produce or synthesize so much energy, ATP, that is needed to produce 400, 300 watts. However, they, the amateur athlete uh, can, 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 cannot get there, doesn't have enough mitochondrial function, doesn't have enough glycolytic capacity, doesn't have enough lactic clearance capacity, and, and fat oxidation, so therefore uh, can only do at a, at a maybe, if you will, a percentage of the metabolic stress, the maximum metabolic stress can only do 180 watts. Uh, and we see that in, that in the laboratory, that at that level, for example, the, the, the elite athlete is burning or oxidizing 0, 0 0.7 grams per minute of, of fatty acid, and at the same level, the, the, the amateur or moderately active athlete can only do 0.3. So we're talking about more than twice. And this is what we're seeing in, in, in with muscle biopsies as well. Uh, we, in the muscle biopsy, what we do is like we take a chunk of muscle in, and we inject directly into that muscle biopsy different substrates. We look at pyruvate, we look at which is the representative of uh, carbohydrates. We also look at lactate, which is also the end product of glycolysis and, and, and uh, and, uh, and, and a main carbohydrate source as well. And we also inject fatty acids and inject amino acids, in this case, it's glutamine. And that, that we see how they utilize it compared to the uh, you know, in-between groups. So we see that they have a much higher capacity to utilize 
um, all substrates. So I'll say going back to the to the analogy of the car, right? If if a Ferrari, for example, yeah, can can go like at let's say at uh, 150 miles an hour, uh, and 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 it's maybe going at 50 percent of the maximum metabolic stress, if you will, of that engine, right? Whereas uh, Volkswagen, for example, as you said, 150 miles an hour, that car is maxed out, right? So that car to go at that 50% of the maximum engine capacity has to go at 70 miles an hour. Now, the, the gasoline consumption at 70 miles an hour, the Volkswagen, that is the substrate is a lot less than that of the Ferrari. So one of the things I found really interesting, I was researching for my article uh, I was looking into that and who it had a bigger impact on. And I'll, I'll give you my honest opinion. Going into it, I thought, well, the, the pro is doing five hours at 300 watts. That's going to have a much bigger cost uh, to them, even though they are better trained than the, the amateur riding at 180 watts. But I actually, at least the research I read, uh, saw that it might actually be the opposite. And you're saying it's the same. But one of the things that, that I found that was very interesting was looking at ROS production, reactive oxygen species. Uh, this is one of the things that causes damage. It's one of the things that causes inflammation after training. You do a lot of hard training or you do a big volume of training, you're going to produce ROS. And, and then your body needs to adapt. It needs to repair the damage caused by that. And I even found an interesting study that showed that too much ROS is what leads to overreaching and overtraining. And there was this one great study that, that shocked me that showed that in amateurs, less experienced cyclists, it was very easy for them to quickly overwhelm their antioxidant system and, and produce a lot of inflammation. Where they looked at pros put them in a, a four-day, so this was, this was actually a study with pros, had them do a four-day top European stage race and showed by the end of that stage race, there was actually a net reduction in ROS because their antioxidant system was so good. So what I was reading in some of this research is actually that, that five-hour ride, even though the amateur's doing it at 180 watts, might actually be more stressful on the amateur than the 300 watt ride on the pro because the the amateur might get overwhelmed with by the uh the oxidative stress where the the pro wouldn't yeah well that that could be that's maybe something adjacent right or separate than the bioenergetics and it's more like what's the the toll right um, right I, I i say that we we still don't know for certain um because we need to do a lot more in my opinion, right? I think that there are not many researchers out there. Uh, we, I, I have been using uh, or measuring uh, ROS in athletes since 2002 or 2003, I forgot. So it's been yeah, close to 20 years doing that uh, with, uh, with the um, uh, micro-method uh, um, photometer where uh, I look at hydroperoxide, which is the most representative uh, right. uh, ROS probably. And um, one thing that we see very clearly that as, and I've done this in Grand Tours, I have done this in Volta, I have done this in the Tour de France, and as the stages progress, the, uh, the rust of those cyclists uh, increase. And, uh, but that's it too, that's, that's because we're talking about the Vuelta or the Tour de France, we're looking at a Grand Tour, 
right. and the uh, the metabolic stress on these guys is tremendous, right? Whereas I don't see that with, for example, doing the training load. The one thing that I've seen is that, and I, and, and I still don't probably don't know why. That's what we need to do more research. Is that those elite athletes uh, they used to have, but they normally have lower ROS levels. That's what I've seen over the years. The the better ones have lower ROS than the other ones, both during training, both at rest, and both also during like a, a grand tour. And this is data that, again, we haven't published it because there's so many data out there that we need to put, I need, I need to put together from 20 years that I didn't have the time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's I, I've been observing that for, for a long time. Um, the one thing that we also know is that these athletes, it's very possible that they have a higher um, well, it's possible. It's, it's been shown that they have a higher antioxidant capacity, endogenous. This is another thing that we're looking also in, with metabolomics. We're looking also at the uh, antioxidant um, uh, capacity of athletes, and absolutely, we see that there are differences uh, in the uh, uh, antioxidant capacity of different athletes within the same group. So uh, it's very possible that definitely they're better they have a better antioxidant capacity than other athletes of lower performance level is the antioxidant capacity something that allows them to be better athletes or does that come about because they've trained so much which comes first well that's what yeah that's a very good question uh, that's what we don't know very well i think that maybe it's a capacity that maybe that they're they're not as tasked, right, while they compete or train, or maybe just they have a much higher recovery capacity, which is something that we see. So we're seeing, for example, and this is something that we're going to start publishing data because we're acquiring it already. We see something that is not in the books, or at least I haven't seen it in the literature, where we thought always that the elite athletes didn't use much protein, right, because they use mostly fat and carbohydrates, and protein didn't use much because they don't want to get catabolic. Well, in fact, we're seeing that they use more protein than uh, the other athletes. But they also, so they get more catabolic during the, during the, 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 the race, for example. <coughs> Excuse me. However, we see also that their anabolic capacity and those amino acids in charge of anabolism, they're also higher. So this is very, um, uh, really cool thing that we have observed. Uh, because um, I, I, I was myself the first one who was like, not, you know, like it, it was a shock to, to see that, right? So, so that's why there are a lot of things that are still we're trying to understand. But without a doubt, the uh, um, yeah, the, the, it's a good question that we're trying to understand whether it's like they, they go through a lower effort or less task, metabolically speaking, or simply they, they go even about the same, but they have a much better recovery capacity, which in my opinion, I would be more inclined towards the, the latter, right? That they might have a better recovery capacity in between sessions, which is something that, you know, uh, empirically, or, or we see that, you know, from the feedback from the athletes, you know, you see athletes who are, you know, after a stage race, they need four or five days to recover. And other ones within two days, they're ready to go. <laughs> and yeah. they tell you, hey, you know, like, I, I need to start doing training again because I'm ready to go. And I'm not, I'm not going to name people, but uh, we, we see that, you know, with athletes, which shocks me, you know, because uh, those athletes, and that, that's what you see, wow, those athletes are amazing. They, they recover very well. 
And uh, we're starting to see that at the cellular level because why in the world this guy is telling me two days later that he's ready to go again versus the other guy that I'm talking to and he said he's too tired and he went for a two-hour ride and the legs hurt. Mm. And the other guy wants to do five hours. Now yeah. we're starting to see the signatures at the cellular level very well differentiated. And it's, it's, it's everything. It's just that they have a, a higher um, antioxidant capacity, a higher recovery capacity. During the race, they don't um, um, uh, suffer as much. Um, they, they, they also they synthesize glycogen. That's another thing that we're seeing. These athletes, they synthesize glycogen, glycogen much better and at a higher rate than others. And therefore, um, they, they, they don't lose so much glycogen during the race or, or in between days. And they can, they can fill it up the tank faster so they have less proteolysis, less catabolism, et cetera. So it's not, I don't think it's one door only. It's, it's everything that you can imagine, you know, right. in terms of bioenergetics, recovery, antioxidants, whatever they do, they just do better. Now we'll hear from Jim Miller. This is from episode 121. Should you build the best engine or focus on specificity? And this was a great conversation overall. A lot of uh, golden nuggets, if you will, that came out of this episode. But we want to focus in on one in particular. Trevor, tell us what we're going to hear. There's been a few themes that we have ended up landing on in 2020 that we, we touched back on either in successive episodes or we'd get lots of questions and it would end up in Q&As. And this is one of those things that became a theme for us in 2020, which is this idea of should you be doing really complex intervals where you, you need an engineering degree to, to read it? Or is it just, as some of our guests have said, um, time and intensity? Uh, where you know, could you take it as far as does recovery length matter that much? Does it really matter how much time you're spending at intensity? I mean, obviously, we feel these things are important. Uh, but you're going to hear Jim Miller say that doing really complex intervals isn't really his style, that it's much more about let's just do simple intervals where you're hitting the right energy system. All right. Let's hear from Jim now. What is your opinion on intervals? So we've, we've had Dr. Seiler on the show who, who has taken more of the approach of it's just time at intensity, however you, you want to cut that, versus there's a lot of people who go, well, you're this type of rider, you got this type of event, so you have to do this specific order of intervals because that's highly specific to the, the event. What, what's your feeling? Are intervals intervals, or do the intervals really need to be tailored to the, the event type? You know, I tend to agree with Siler on most things. I love, I love listening to him talk. He's extremely knowledgeable in, uh, yeah. in his field. And that Southern draw just kind of sucks you in. Just, yes, it does. We, we were talking about that, that mix between a Texan accent and a Norwegian accent. You could just yeah. listen to it all day. I've you never can. heard that before. He's got a smooth delivery, that guy. He does. And, and whether, you know, I don't know. I just, I agree with him. I, I tend to think that our body and, and how we define these energy systems and, and specifically intervals, we're just, it's not that fine. We're not that, we're not that sophisticated. Um, when you tell somebody 280, the body really doesn't know the difference between 278, 275, 283, et cetera. So I, I tend to, to dump things into bigger buckets. Um, 
change the intervals up accordingly. Uh, I do, you know, I do take a threshold interval and I like to do it a couple ways. I do, I do long threshold intervals, 15 minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes, um, when we're building fitness. But then when I really start to, we start to get to race season, then I think that, uh, the broken intervals, the three on one off, but you do in 15 minutes of it, uh, tends to elicit a little bit different response. You end up with a higher power output. It's, it's a harder interval. Um, and I think for your, your bang for your buck and racing, you get more out of that. Um, but honestly, I think that the Siler's right, that a lot of this goes into, into big buckets and it's, it's, it's number and duration. So I actually last night tried to find some studies that, that countered this. Um, and again, this goes back to that contradiction. We talked about building the engine. You want to target the, the particular capacities. And so here's our next contradiction, which is I kept finding in the studies exactly what you're saying, which was high intensity is high intensity. It just doesn't matter. So I found one study of cyclists where they had one group of, of cyclists doing um, what they're, so they're comparing it to uh, your, your VO2 max power. So one group was doing their interval work above VO2 max. The other group was doing what they were calling submax intensity, so about I think it was ninety percent of their VO two max, so pretty close to the threshold. And they were looking at improvements in time trial performance, and both groups had exactly the same improvement. They had another study in runners where they they were looking at improvements in their ten k time, and they had one group of runners again doing more threshold type work, and they had the other group of runners doing sprint work. So super short, super high intensity, and again, exact same improvement in their 10K time. Mm -hmm. So just again and again and again, it was just simply, you got to do some high intensity work. And I did find studies that said, well, if you don't do high intensity work, no, you, you can't perform that well. So you have to have some. But after that, it just doesn't all this belief that well sprint work trains this and Tabata's trained that and threshold trains that it doesn't necessarily seem to be panning out it sounds like that's kind of what what you're saying as well i think i probably break my buckets into into that uh, above threshold below threshold at threshold maybe below threshold and then just that aerobic zone but within those buckets then yeah mix it up change the change the number of intervals change the length of them change the change the power slightly, change the requirements, but I still think they group into those, those three main buckets. Now let's turn to episode 127, Overreaching, Overtraining, and Burnout with Dr. Steven Seiler. We couldn't have a best of 2020 episode without Dr. Seiler in it. And this was uh, an episode where he liked to define some terms, clarify some things, scold Trevor a little bit, but Trevor, you also have a personal history with uh, this aspect of training. So tell us a little bit more about what Dr. Seiler is going to talk about. This is probably my favorite episode of, of 2020. Uh, I, it was a fun recording. I thought there was a lot of good information in it from Dr. Seiler. I also spent a lot of time researching for th this one and, and thoroughly enjoyed that research. But where we started, and, and I just think this is a really important thing to, to replay, 
is defining these different terms. What is burnout? What is functional overreach? What is non-functional overreach? And what is overtraining? They're all different things that we sometimes use interchangeably. And it's really important to understand what each is and, and which you should avoid and which, if you're careful, you can actually use. Excellent. Let's hear from Dr. Seiler now. You do a workout and you're tired after, and, and that's normal, you know, that, that we train and we're fatigued uh, immediately after and, and maybe for hours after to the next day. And hopefully we're recovered and we train again. So this is a cycle that we go through all the time as athletes. Now we take it a step higher and we're, we're in a normal training routine. We're pushing, but now we want a little extra. We want to really, you know, we add uh, some volume or we add a, an extra interval session each week or we add even more. And we start stretching that rubber band, you might say, as a metaphor, uh, with the intention that it will bounce, will bounce back. We'll get a kind of an overshoot. Uh, and that's that classic general adaption syndrome from our hero uh, Celia way back decades ago and and athletes use this you know in training camps in preparation for big events they really dig in they have the intention of sometimes you know digging a bit of a hole for themselves swimmers are notorious for this and then uh, then getting a super compensation and if they get that right then that's what we call functional overreaching. So it's an intentional, you know, taking out the shovel, digging a bit of a hole for yourself physically, where performance actually declines a bit. You're really, you know, you're pushing the volume, you're pushing the training load, and then you let up on the, on the gas pedal. You give your body some recovery time in a taper, and you get, you know, maybe a 3% overshoot well that's fantastic so that's so that's functional overreaching it may take days up to maybe two weeks to come all the way back and get that overshoot now non-functional overreaching it it's not hard to imagine that that just you took it too far and it didn't work you end up kind of damaging the rubber band and it doesn't you don't get the overshoot and in fact you get a delayed recovery so you, you're starting down that pathway towards a more profound and, and more long-term uh, deficit functionally. And this can take several weeks, maybe a month to come back from, maybe two months to come back from. But it's a, it's a fuzzy, uh, the, the key difference definitionally between functional and non-functional is just it's the function. <laughs> Did you get that? super right. compensation as planned or did you you know end up limping back to normalcy after you know weeks of things not going well and that championship event you were supposed to be really primed for you end up sucking you know you just weren't there because you end up pushing too hard that's a typical non-functional overreaching situation that's uh, really important. You can even see a non-functional overreach if it takes too long to, to come out of it. If it takes that month or longer, you can detrain. So you can come out of it weaker, not stronger. Yeah, absolutely. That's a critical distinction. And let's be honest, 
uh, I would almost say functional overreaching is not for beginners. Uh, that 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 process, it, it's usually it tends to be successful in athletes and coaches, coach athlete groups or, or, or teams that really are tuned in and they know how, how much they can, you know, stretch that, uh, that rubber band. They know that they've learned through experience what the athlete tolerates. And, uh, because it is, it's tricky and it can easily go the wrong way. Yeah, you've used so, the you've used the rubber band analogy. You could also maybe talk about w- walking sort of right up to an edge with overreaching, and if you don't get it right, you go off the you go off the cliff. Or if you stretch the rubber band too much, you snap that rubber band, and that's where we get into problems. A lot of right. coaches like talking about the razor's edge. So functional overreach is going to the edge. Non-functional overreach is going over the edge. Yeah, and there's there are some sports. Swimming, I think, would be the one I that I see most common. That is, functional overreaching is almost built into the psyche of the athlete. Uh, it's almost like they they don't know what how to, to how to not do that hmm. before a major competition. Uh, they really dig in deep. They do a they they count on that that kind of super compensation from a, from a hard overreach, uh, situation, but there's been some research. There are some studies that say that, you know, they're not even sure this actually works. You know, that, that, that if you just train smart, you end up the same place. So uh, the whole idea, I think it does work for some, if they know how to do it, if they get that, you know, that, uh, the increase, appropriate because it always involves an increase in training load either through volume or intensity or both so you are purposefully increasing the load at a higher rate of increase than you normally would and that's usually a recipe for problems you know when you do a pretty drastic increase in volume or you know overall training stress then there will be some negative consequences here the goal is that yes that we want that to happen but we we're going to control it so well that it's going to give us a bounce back yep that's that's what you're gambling on i did a a lot of research for this one but i think the study or review i spent the most time on that i found really interesting was from this year february of 2020 uh, by a dr bellinger and the title of it is functional overreaching in endurance athletes a necessity or cause for concern and he makes a pretty good case for the fact that, well, yes, you can get a supercompensation from functional overreach when you look at studies that compare functionally overreached athletes to athletes who just increase their training load but don't get functionally overreached. You, you see a pretty equal supercompensation. So he's really questioning, is it necessary at all? So before that, let's finish defining overtraining and burnout, and then we can talk about how to differentiate them. Right. So if, and if you go a, a several steps further, and, and if you have an athlete that has solved every problem with doubling down on training load, um, meaning that when it hasn't gone well, they have answered that problem by saying, well, I need to train more, they will be a candidate for that ultimate problem, which is overtraining, you know, this overtraining syndrome. Now, the reason overtraining has get, been given this extra word at the end, a syndrome, 
is because syndromes mean that you there's several ways to get there it it and and when that happens in other words there's this set of symptomology that may happen because of several different uh mechanisms then they end up calling it a syndrome and that's kind of where we're at with overtraining you can be overtrained like i talked to a national team coach and he says look we've had overtraining cases because of viruses because of infections where you've got this highly trained athlete that is on the razor's edge, but they're okay. They're doing well. And then they get mono or some other kind of virus that drags them down. And then they keep training and the combination puts them into this overtraining state that that happens. But another way it happens in the more, probably more typical way it happens is just a long-term pushing the volume and the you know the total load too hard and not recovering because basically one way of calling it is overtraining but you could call it also under recovery syndrome um and it's it's pretty hard to distinguish the two because they're two sides of the same coin and in fact if you look at the historical literature under recovery has been one of the terms that's been used and I should forgive you, uh, Trevor, for also using burnout because that term has also been used synonymously with overtraining. So the literature is itself ha- has been kind of, uh, what should I say, inconsistent. Uh, and I think part of that is just it's science has taken a while to figure this out. You know, they, they've looked at different things, seen different symptomologies, different snapshots of a what we might say is a is a continuum and i think that's where we're at in our understanding of this is that we're really looking at a continuum in in a in a stress and recovery kind of balance and and different to different degrees that it that this stress recovery balance becomes shifted or out of balance and how the body responds Now let's go to episode 91, Beyond the Data. Training is not only about numbers. We just snuck this in. This was back in January of 2020. This is a little bit more about what you were just describing, Trevor, about the execution sometimes is just as critical, if not more so, than hitting any particular number. Tell us a little bit more about what we'll hear. So this next bit is with Julie Young, who is an accomplished coach, physiologist, and a, a, an elite level athlete herself. She has, I'm happy to say, become a big part of our Fast Talk Labs family uh, over the last year. But first communication I personally ever had with her was at the end of 2019. We got into this email conversation about all the ways that training and strength and the assets of an athlete don't just show up in the numbers. And it was such an interesting email conversation that at the end of it, I just said, hey, could you come on the show? Let's have this conversation on the show. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, And what you're about to hear is one excerpt from this conversation of the things that don't show up in the numbers. So Julie and I, during our conversations, we came up with a list of some of the areas that both of us as coaches 
feel are absolutely critical to training, critical to performance that just don't show up in the numbers. So I'm just going to do the quick list and then we can take a deeper dive into each of these. But the first one is, I really like Julie's terminology for this, building mental and physical competence. Uh, the next one that's a big one for me is knowing and focusing on the big picture. Um, and that includes having both balance and perspective and also having purpose and goals. So Julie, let's, let's throw it back to you and tell us a little bit about what you mean by mental and physical competence. So for me, and again, I, I go back to podcasts you guys have done and you talk about executing the, the workouts. And, you know, I think you, you guys did a great job explaining that, you know, sound training is not this ever changing like circus of workouts where you're simply just trying to entertain the athlete, but it's a, a core group of workouts that the athlete does better and better and better. And to me, execution is not about chasing a number on my power meter. It's about using that as a reference and definitely getting into that zone, but mentally like using that, that training session Put yourself in an upcoming race, like an important piece of an upcoming race, like visualizing yourself while you're doing this, this intense workout and mentally visualizing yourself in that, that part of that race. And I think thinking about ways that, you know, you, you mentally, you take your mind beyond the discomfort of the physical sensations and whether it's focusing on a fluid pedal stroke, your breathing, your posture, whatever it is, you know, but essentially, these are things that you're going to lean on in the race. I know for myself, like being in races, I'll fall back on, you know, a training session and just say to myself, hey, this is no big deal. This is just a hill interval. So for me, like the execution is really about, again, mentally using that interval to put yourself in an upcoming race versus just, again, chasing that power number or mentally taking off the time. And I think we really, we lose out on a lot of the benefits of training when we, when we approach it that way. And I feel like when, again, when you can attach this, this mental like visualization, you're going to glean so much more effectiveness out of your, your training sessions. Another example I'll give, this is one of my favorites because it's, it's just a, a pure example is hill climbing. Um, one of the things that I think is really valuable to get out of training is a, a sense of yourself, a sense of how hard can I do a five minute effort how, or a climb? How hard can I do a 10 minute? How hard can I do a 30 minute and really get a sense of your own limits. And you see that with riders who learn that and build that confidence in a race versus riders who don't have that confidence. Riders who don't know themselves well, who don't have that confidence when they hit the climb, they're just going to bury themselves to stay with the leaders until they absolutely explode. Where a, a really experienced, competent rider, when they hit that climb, they know, okay, I can handle a few surges at this pace. Um, they, they know the line of, if I go over this line, I'm going to explode. And I'm going to avoid that at all, you know, as much as I can. And ultimately, they know what is their pace for whatever the length of the climb is. And you see very experienced riders, they might respond to one or two surges, but if they assess this is too hard for me, they're actually going to let the leaders go, 
drop into their own pace, knowing that's their best chance to get over the climb. And you, anybody who's watched the tour, you'll see this, where sometimes the tour leader gets attacked, doesn't respond at all because he just knows that's too hard for me, but I don't think this guy can, can hold that pace. And sure enough, 10 minutes later, they're bringing that person back. And that takes a huge amount of confidence. It takes a huge amount of self-awareness. And I, again, I think that's, not, that, that's beyond knowing the numbers because the, the numbers in training and the numbers of what you can do in a race are different. It's, it's a feel thing and it's a confidence thing. I think for me too, I, I, I think there's this, this sense of like, I think all the great like, athletes and champions have this incredible sense of calm and composure. And I think that's a huge part, you know, when you have that confidence, it's just, you create, it's this calmness and, you know, you can, you can deal with, with the situations. And, and again, I think in training, it gives you those, those, those mental focuses that, you know, again, it's not just chasing, like for me, just personally chasing a power number on my device, I feel like I'm wrestling my bike. I don't feel like I'm fast and efficient. But when I focus on, okay, pedal stroke, rhythm, breathing, posture, those kind of things, that makes me a, a better rider. And I think that's like, again, in the race situations, you know, to mentally take the focus there and, and find that calm and that composure to me, you know, results in, in, in a good performance. Now let's hear a little bit from episode 101, Zones Are a Range and Not a Specific Number, featuring an all-star cast of guests. And in this clip, we're going to hear from one of the biggest all-stars in American cycling right now, Sepp Kuss. Um, you've seen him on TV probably kicking butt in the mountains of some grand tours. But this, this is uh, another one where we talk a little bit about execution um, training zones not being necessarily a constant thing. Trevor, tell us a little bit more about what we're going to hear. Yeah, if there's one message we wanted to get across in, in this uh, episode, it goes, as you said, it goes back to execution. And it's this idea that if you have a zone, so let's say your threshold zone is 270 watts to 300 watts, there's this belief that, well, I should be riding at 300 watts. And what we are trying to communicate in this episode is, no, it's a range for a reason. And some days that 300 watts might be right. Other days, the two closer to 270 might be right. So what I love about this clip is, is we, we had Sepp Kuss on the show, who tends to be a power guy and tends to focus on the numbers when he's doing intervals. But even somebody who's, who's more on the, the power side, the, the number side, you hear him say, I go out, I see how I feel that day, and then I adjust the number. So we've discussed this before. There, there are many, but I'm, I'm really going to focus on four here. Uh, part of the reason I want to focus on these four is there's a lot of different zone models out there. There's simple ones like the Dr. Seiler has his three zone model. I've seen zone systems that have nine different zones. Mm -hmm. When you actually look at our physiology, there's only a few key breakpoints. So a lot of these zones are just based, these zone models are based maybe on experience, maybe on what athletes do, mm -hmm. but you can't point to something physiological and say, there was a change there. Something was right. going on right. there. So when you're talking about if you did a lactate test or a ramp test and we were looking at what was going on, 
physiologically, here's the, the key breakpoints. Obviously, there's the two thresholds. There is your aerobic threshold mm -hmm. and there's your anaerobic threshold. Aerobic threshold is that point where if you are on a, doing a lactate test, you start seeing that rise in lactate. So a proper lactate test, you would have a few stages where your, your lactates are going to stay low depending on your, your level, somewhere around 1, 1 1.2. You're not going to see lactate rise at all. Uh, aerobic threshold is, is after you start to see that rise. So there is a, a physiological, a clear physiological change that is happening. And there's a lot of explanations. Again, this is, we, we don't want to go too deep into the weeds. We've done episodes on this. This is kind of the summary. But one of the beliefs, uh, I believe in this, one of the things that's happening when you hit that aerobic threshold is now you're starting to recruit those two a fibers. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're, you're starting to bring in fast twitch muscle fibers. New article that I really liked called lactate threshold concepts. How valid are they? Mm -hmm. And most of what I was just explaining is summarized in this review. Another one called exercise intensity thresholds, identifying the boundaries of sustainable performance by uh, Dr. Keir. Those would be the two that I would say kind of explain a lot of this and explain this interesting contradiction where, like you said, on the one hand, it's very fluid. And we mentioned this in the previous episode. When physiologists talked about lactate threshold, they're talking about that entire range between that aerobic threshold and that anaerobic threshold or MLSS. Mm -hmm. uh, because as we said, aerobic threshold is the point where you start to see the rise in lactate. Hence, you've now hit a lactate threshold. Mm-hmm. Yet there are still these, these key breakpoints where they go, even though this whole thing is fluid, there's these two points where it's clear below this, mm -hmm. one thing's going on, above this, another thing is going on. Right. And they have an impact. The last thing to bring up about that anaerobic threshold that's been mentioned multiple times in, in many studies, Dr. Seiler wrote a little bit about this, but above that anaerobic threshold, above that MLSS, there is a disproportionate increase in sympathetic nervous system activity. Uh, so I, I could go deep into the weeds in this, but basically what all these, these studies say, and in particular the one I would recommend is uh, one called, it's an older one, plasma catecholamines during endurance exercise of different intensities as related to the individual anaerobic threshold. How's that for a name? Uh, and that was in the European Journal of Applied Physiology back in 1994. But the gist of it is there is a toll that you take when you go above anaerobic threshold. There, there are certainly some sympathetic stress when you're between those two thresholds, but you get above that anaerobic threshold and all of a sudden you're really hitting the system. There is going to be a price to pay that you don't pay below. Hence the reason we've often said, you gotta be careful about that work above anaerobic threshold. You just can't do it every day because of this sympathetic stress, because of the, the sort of damage it's doing to your system and, and the increased need for recovery after this sort of work. When you do intervals, is it purely by power heart rate or is there a feel component? For me, I, it's usually just by by power only. Um, I've never done, done heart rate. Yeah. I usually set myself up with, with numbers that are 
pretty pretty doable never really reaching for a for a number i mean you know some days will be harder than others but yeah the way i do the intervals i go into them knowing yeah this is a a number or you know perceived exertion that that is not not easy but something that's attainable and repeatable day to day or interval to interval so yeah it's it's hard to describe it but i'd say at at the end of the day i never feel like oh that was a a 10 out of 10 just awful awful day hard at the end of the day it's like oh that was maybe a maybe 8 out of 10 difficulty but i could do it again tomorrow so i'd say that's my my general you know feeling right you said you you're going to look at the power let's say you doing intervals and you say i'm going to be doing these intervals at 400 watts mm-hmm. do you consider how you feel at all i mean if you go out and one day they're killing you another day they feel easy mm-hmm. do you just say i'm going to ignore how that how that feels and i'm going to stick with the 400 watts or do you um listen to how you feel and say maybe today i need to back down or today i can step it up a little yeah i think usually if it takes me about yeah intervals two intervals to truly feel how how I'll feel that that day or that that session or whatever so yeah definitely if I feel like crap I think okay well what did I do what was the what does the training looked like before what what have I been eating um and then you know I'll make a decision maybe I just shouldn't be doing the interval at all if I feel that awful or yeah maybe I should push through maybe at a lower lower power and just make that that new number the new uh you know, standard for, for just that day. But yeah, it's, it's always a tough call because you always want to be, at least for me, I always want to be at the, the top of what I, I can do. But another component is, you know, thinking, thinking big picture, the lift for later in the week or for, you know, the next week's training, what, what you need to, what you need to do, save yourself or, or right. not. So. so going through a couple different interval types, um, how are you, so when you're doing more of a threshold type workout, mm-hmm. and I don't know what sort of length thresholds, whether you're, you're doing shorter five minutes or you, you like the, the 20 minute type threshold workout, which, which I'd love to hear, but um, how do you gauge w- with a threshold workout? Is, is it pure power or, or how do you know what sort of intensity to hold with that and, and, and how are you pacing yourself for the workout? Honestly, it's pretty, uh, yeah, ro- robotic for me, I guess. I say, yeah, this is this is the number, and you just you just got to do it. For me, I think there's the mental component, too. It's it's hard for me just to say, okay, I'm doing this number for, for 20 minutes. I'm going to say, oh, I'll do three minutes this number with a minute this number for 20 minutes. And then that's, that's easier for me to do than just staring at a line. He sees how he feels, and then he adjusts the numbers. And this is important. The range changes. It changes day to day. It changes over the course of a ride or what's optimal for you. So we can say your range is 160 to 190. And some days, yeah, right at 190 is going to give you the best gains. But the next day, that might be too hard. A couple days later, that might be too easy. That's why you need to look at the range, listen to how you feel, and say, I'm not feeling as good today. I'm going to drop it down. I'm going to go lower in the range. Or you can have a day where you're feeling really good and go, okay, I'm going to push it a little today. I'm going to push the upper end of that range. But if you just sit there and say, this is the number, I have to hit that number, 
Or let's say you're on a trainer doing intervals and you just lock in that trainer at what you think your FTP is. So let's say it's that 280 and you just go, I've got to do 280. You're having a bad day. You're a little fatigued. You're going to get disappointed because you're not going to be able to get through those intervals. They're going to feel like crap and you're just going to say, what's wrong with me? I did 280 a week ago. Am I getting less fit? No, it varies. Last week, 280 was right. This week, maybe you should have done 270. But you need to vary it. And you know that's a day-to-day thing. But even on the course of a ride, if you're going out doing a five-hour ride, 190 might be right at the start of that mm-hmm. ride. Mm-hmm. That might be too high at the end of that ride. And we think when we create these zones, we think of ourselves a little too much like machines. And when you start thinking about the edges, I need to sit right at the edge of my zone, then you're really turning yourself into a machine and you're not allowing that day-to-day fluctuation. A good zone model is going to allow that fluctuation. It is a range. And that's why you have to look at each day. Okay, my zone two is 160 to 190. Today, I'm closer to 160. Tomorrow, I'm closer to 190. Now let's turn our attention to episode 131, Balancing Science and Experience in Your Training. This was with Cameron Cogburn. Trevor, take us inside this episode a little bit more about that ex- that idea that experience is essentially an N of one. The idea of this clip here is you know, those of us in the science, we, we really focus on, well, the, you need lots and lots of subjects to be able to get good data. You want to do a study. The more people, the better. So you want a big N. But when we're talking about us as individuals with our own individual training, it's actually the N of one is all that's important. So a study with a whole bunch of people in it might say, well, here's generally what's effective, but you might be out, you might be an outlier. You might be different. So what's important to you is where you lie. Let's start by really defining what what we mean by science and what we mean by experience. No easy feat here to uh, try to encapsulate the uh, totality of both here. The best place to start when looking at a definition is just, you know, you can go straight to the, uh, the dictionary here. If you look up science, there are a couple of definitions, but the state of knowing, knowledge as distinguished from ignorance or misunderstanding, um, and B, a department of systematized knowledge as an object of study, as something providing a framework for knowledge. I think that's kind of the working definition. Similarly with experience, two definitions stood out to me. And the first one is a direct observation of or participation in events as a basis of knowledge. And B, Practical knowledge, skill, or practice derived from direct observation of or participation in events or in a particular activity. So more kind of a grounding of knowledge as a consequence of uh, events, basically. The way I think of these, um, particularly when we're talking about helping out athletes, uh, I always think of science as the law of the bell-shaped curve. So what you are doing is, so think of it as the, when you're doing a study, they talk about N, which is the number of subjects or the, 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 the number of whatever it is you're studying. So the higher the N value, the, the more scientific power it has. 
because what you're looking for is trends. And the idea is the best science, you are taking any bias out of it. So let's say we're talking about studying a particular sports drink formula. You really just want to say, we're going to take a group of subjects. We're going to test them with this formula. We're going to test them up against a placebo. And we're just going to see if it, it shows whether it improved their performance or not. You've taken the bias out of it. The more subjects you have, the stronger the statement you can make. Experience to me is the N of one, which in many ways for you is all that matters. So science will say, here's the general trend. We saw it helped a lot of people, but whenever you have a large sample, it's really going to help some, it's not going to help others. Again, it's that bell-shaped curve. What you care about is you. Did it help you? So I always think of experience being this N of one is all that matters. Right. That sort of gets at uh, the shortcomings of each in a nutshell. The, the science, because it's about a, a large number of people, it doesn't always apply on an individual level because individuals can be unique and different. Um, on the experience side, the what works for you it can't necessarily or doesn't necessarily work for your training partner or somebody else on your team that you're mentoring. So uh, there, there, that's a little glimpse into the shortcomings of each of these things. What are, right. what are some of the other shortcomings? So on that bell-shaped curve, and I'll throw this to Cameron, mm -hmm. there are what are called outliers. And I'm a strong believer that all of us are an outlier somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're, for instance, looking at a specific study, you know, as, as you mentioned, Trevor, that uh, most scientific papers, they try to analyze phenomena in the aggregate and then from that derive, you know, a general principle. Uh, however, you know, you might have an individual response to that, for instance, if it's a training modality or, or nutrition, uh, you might have an individual response to that intervention. In most scientific papers that they're not a hundred percent of the participants get the same outcomes. And so I think it is important to recognize that individuality does come into play when interpreting these papers and, um, and other, you know, scientific principles. And the more, I guess, experience you have and the more, you know, yourself and, what kind of works and does not work for you, the better you can interpret certain results and know ahead of time whether they'll be applicable, whether they won't necessarily be as useful to you or not. This next one is a bit of a fun episode that we did with Ruth Winder. Chris, you want to tell us about it? Yeah, you know, she won the national championship race. Gosh, that was now 2019. And this episode was all about how to be aggressive in races and her tactic, her experience within that national championship race was exactly what we were talking about in this episode. When, noticing the right time to make the move, how to understand the, the, the different players, when to get away, how to use teammates to be aggressive – um, you know, how to be a little bit coy at times, but also then once you are aggressive, 
you can't let up. You have to then put your head down and and as she likes to say, cycling is pain. <laughs> you just got to go with it. And uh, fingers crossed, a lot of the times it doesn't work out, but fingers crossed, sometimes it does. And this was a perfect example of how you can turn aggressive racing into a big win. So at Nationals, we do, for anybody that didn't watch the race, we do a circuit, which we did seven times, that has, I think it's about a five-minute climb. It's fairly steep. And then after that, we have a pretty steep, somewhat t technical descent that then drops you out onto kind of this highway road. Um, so you have a hard climb and then a pretty fast descent. Um, and so Taylor had been going really hard up the climb to just try and string it out. And then I didn't... So typically when a teammate goes really hard, then the... As soon as that person is brought back and comes back to the field, the second there's the lull, you need to the the thing is to attack to go right go. away, which I knew everybody would be waiting for because that's like what everybody does. Like you just yeah. you do that. So I yeah. waited past that point, mm. and nobody else went. Which was there was already a small breakaway up the road at this point. Actually, there was already I think three or four riders right. up the road. Um, but when Taylor had gone really hard up the climb, I think everybody else would just like kind of stopped and started to look at each other and like, oh, are you gonna go? Are you gonna go? Um, and nobody did. And then I waited past that lull. And then I came up to Taylor and I made sure I did it in a way so that there wasn't somebody on my wheel that I knew would be able to to chase me down immediately. And this person was Katie. I knew Katie was on my wheel. And I have a bunch, like, I, when I attack with speed, I have quite a lot of speed. And Katie is a fantastic climber, but doesn't Katie have her. Hall. Katie Hall. Katie um, Hall doesn't have as much speed when she attacks. So I thought, okay. Katie's on my wheel, but I came alongside Taylor and I just made it look like I was going to have a conversation with Taylor, mm -hmm. which I didn't. I just asked her if she was okay. And she was like, yeah, I'm okay. And then I just <laughs> attacked, <Jumped>. <laughs> which honestly, when I went, it's one of those things that I'm like, well, I'm going to go because Taylor's just, everybody's uh, on the limit a little bit here. Like she's just done pretty hard over this climb. Um, it's a good chance because there's definitely a low, like no people are not paying as much attention right now. It was still 21 miles from the finish. So it's still fairly mm -hmm. long way to go. So people are going to be like, uh-huh, like, we'll get her. Like, she has time kind <laughs> of a thing. So I kind of, in my mind, was like, well, this is a good time to go to set up Taylor. Honestly, I was like, Taylor was feeling so strong on that climb. Like, I'm just going to go. And then when I get brought back, then Taylor can go again on the climb or something right. like that. Like, that's what I was thinking at that time. I don't normally look at my power when I'm racing, but then after that, I switched my power meter so that I could see the screen with my power so that I knew that I was riding within myself at a fairly good speed. And eventually I caught the couple of girls that were off the front, uh, which was really good because then I was able to get some recovery and work with them a little bit. And then going over the climb, only one girl stayed with me. And then, which was also good to have someone with me for some period of time. Right. right. Um, and I was really wanted to be with her. So that was really good. And she was really working hard. And That's then, a little bit of a mental boost for that period of time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And then it was just like the gap got filled. I don't even remember how big it got now, maybe a minute and a half or something. Like it got fit like fairly big. Uh, and then with one lap to go, it's funny on the course is this out and back section. So I could see in the follow car was um, Taylor, Taylor Wiles' wife, Olivia, and then my boyfriend, Zach, was in the car. And my we, you're allowed radios at nationals, but my radio hadn't been working. So I hadn't heard anything. But then I just could see them in the car as we went, like, as we mm -hmm. doubled back on the course. And they were just out of the car, like, banging <laughs> on the car, like, come on, keep going, keep going. That must and have at been this awesome. point, like, uh, for the last lap, 
I just went as hard as I could and I eventually dropped the girl that I was with and I changed my power back from with a lap with a lap to go I changed it back so I couldn't see the power anymore and I was just staring at the white line on the road doing that right here right now moment like yeah. just uh, mm-hmm. going as fast as I could go and just keep pushing on the pedals as hard as I could go and the field was getting like really really close behind me actually like they they got when I was probably like three miles from the finish I looked behind me and I was like okay any moment now they're going to catch me like it's just going to be a matter of time but we're like three miles to go so i can't stop like you have to just keep going you have to keep going and then when we got to the last mile i knew we had a few turns and so i was literally just sprinting between every turn just like using the corner as recovery and just like you could breathe when you get to the corner but you have to (laughs) sprint between every corner and then yeah like cross the line just in front of corinne uh and i just was couldn't believe it Let's now take a look at episode 113. The duration and intensity of rest periods is as critical as your intervals with Sebastian Weber. Again, I don't think we could have a best of 2020 uh, episode without Sebastian Weber. And this is, uh, you know, Sebastian at his best, being a little bit sassy, as he likes to be, a little bit particular about definitions and terms. So, Trevor, Please take us inside this clip and tell us a little bit more about what we're going to hear. And we have to point out, this is our producer, Jana's favorite clip of the year. She, she thought this was fun. Uh, this is just us talking about five-minute, what are generally referred to as VO2 max intervals. And we were trying to analyze the effectiveness of them, but it quickly turned into a... Uh, uh, what would you call it? A, a, a mean girl gossip session about wow. uh, okay. five minute intervals. <laughs> we got pretty bad. What you don't know about this clip is we had a rant about five minute intervals and then we got back on topic and then did a second rant on five minute intervals because we just hadn't had enough of beating up on those intervals. And, and when we edited it, we put the two together, but that was how much we wanted to attack these intervals. All, and yeah, all the while, the the uh, Swiss cowbells were ringing in the background for Sebastian. As I remember, we recorded this. He was at home. the The cowbells were ringing. It was a great. It was a great recording. Here we are with Sebastian Weber. Yeah, let's stop being so boring and let's talk about a different type of interval here. Let's yeah, talk let's, about let's the uh, the all out but long interval. Say it's a five minute interval and it's full gas. And this is just particularly in the in North America, the common nomenclature for this is is VO two max intervals. Right. So they tend to be four or five minutes in, in length and they're all out. Yeah, maybe we should do a podcast, one whole session about why you call this VO two max interval. <laughs> there there's a whole bunch of terms that just have become the terms that you could really dive into and Well we won't refer we we don't have to refer to them as such, but let's just define them as five minutes in length and all out. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say four to five minutes and it's, yeah, you should right. be bleeding from the eyes by the end of that. <laughs> okay. So let's assume you do that. Um, and let's don't touch on it why you do that, or maybe why you don't do that. Talking about the recovery, right? Yes. The issue is here. And that's, that's the main issue with recovery periods is that you are, maxing out different systems, right? You're maxing out your creatine phosphate stores because those will be depleted at the end of this exercise. You are maxing out your 
pH levels in terms of de decreasing those. You are most likely maxing out your, your, your lactate concentration, which you can handle, so to speak, simplified. You're maxing out your, your, your VO2, obviously, like, you know, um, that's, that's part of it. Um, and the issue with the rest period is that you have now different systems you need to recover. And they have different uh, time kinetics, how long it takes them to recover. And they have different intensity at which they recover the best. And this becomes the complicated thing here, so to speak, if your intention is to bring back all systems to full recovery, which is needed if you want to at least try to repeat the same exercise, right? So it's, right. let's say if you create a session here to be more precise on what kind of intervals you're talking about, if you create a session where you say, I, use a f I, use, I go the first one full out, and then I use this power as a reference for the other for the, follow, for the following three, four, I don't know how many reps you want to do, and use this as my reference point and try to hit the same number. If this is what you're doing, then you need to recover and restore all those different systems. And again, they recover at different durations at, at different intensities. And this is the tricky part here. Yeah, and this goes back to our discussion about the, the perturbance and what what Sebastian is saying now that one system takes X number of seconds or minutes to fully restore itself. Another system takes a different length of time and you might want to have them all restored. You probably do want to have them all restored, but if you don't do them the right way, one might be fully restored, another might be 75% restored. There, So that's why it gets pretty complex. Is that what we're saying here? Yeah, it is. it is pretty complex, but on the other hand... You're talking mostly about two systems here. You're just talking about the phosphocreatine system and you're talking about the lactate system, and therefore the pH values. And the, the results you just cited or summarized here are not really surprising um, because in this study, the intensity in the, in the recovery phase was comparable low. Like the, the, it was basically like a fast walking, right? Right. And this was runners, um, uh, we should mention. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this was runners and they ran at five kilometers per hour, I guess, for the recovery it was. And this is, I mean, this is a good walk, right? Yeah. Um, so at this intensity, um, the rate of lactate recovery, so the, 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 the rate per minute, per second whatsoever, how much lactate you can clear from your system in the muscle is relatively low, especially in this population he had there. Walking for two minutes or for four minutes doesn't change a whole lot here in terms of the lactate. Right. Right? Um, it's not a huge difference. We are maybe talking about half a millimole or something-ish, like ballpark. Um, and what happens at this low intensity is that you uh, will recover your creatine phosphate stores in the first approximately one and a half to two and a half minutes, depending on you know, mostly depending on how good you are aerobically. Um, so how big is your aerobic engine? How big is your VO2 max? So therefore, it is no surprise that you don't see a difference between the two and the four, no significant difference because between the two and the four minutes recovery. Because basically, the recovery of the creatine phosphate system will not change significantly between two right. and four minutes. And the recovery of lactate will change but the but the impact the effect of the effect of that is rather small 
So this is why the directed or prescribed recovery phases show this pattern. And then the self-selected one, the self-selected one is also refers to the same mechanics, basically. The self-selected one is because you feel recovered or you feel better uh, when your creating phosphate system is recovered or is replenished. You know, we just talked about before, talking about the long intervals that, for example, in the pro cyclists, but also in amateur recreational cyclists, the self-selected intensity for recovery is most likely never too hard, but if so, too easy, mm. right? And that's the first thing that happens when you do a hard interval and your best recovery rate for recovering lactate is, let's say, 180 watts, your threshold is 300, you do your threshold intervals. Or even after those four or five minutes, it doesn't feel good. It feels pretty ugly, so to speak, to jump from 300, 400, 500 watts back to 200. It feels much better if initially you just stop pedaling, yes. right? Or just pedal with 50 watts or something. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because the force your muscle can, can create is related to the creating phosphate content. So when you replenish your creating phosphate, and again, this process is, I mean, it's not linear, right? But it's, you're close to the maximum replenishment of creating phosphate again, depending on your, on your oxygen kinetics and VO2max approximately after two minutes. So after that time, you feel strong again. You feel strong again, and therefore it's natural that you know, athletes will, athletes will, 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 will you know, re repeat in the next interval or, or are, are more, more inclined you know, to, to restart again. And if you want to have an idea on how this feels like or what's going on there, just imagine... Uh, and this also tell, tells a story about how quick this, this process is. Imagine you're riding very, very hard, like in a bunch or something, right? You're almost riding at your limit. And it's about to do a little attack. It's about to go out of the saddle and push hard for just a few refs here. Imagine doing this when you're on your limit versus just stop pedaling for two seconds, right? If you just leave out, so to speak, a few pedal strokes, preparing for a sprint or yeah, just a little attack, um, you will immediately feel a little bit stronger. And this is the fast first phase of creating phosphate recovery. And again, the force that you can produce and therefore the torque, and which is obviously important in acceleration, um, depends highly on the phosphorylation of the muscle cell, which is creating phosphate restoration. So yeah, these findings make absolutely sense in terms of muscle energetics. And I'm going to just say, so you said if you, you do these intervals, you feel better if you, you just stop pedaling afterwards and fully rest. Part of the reason I don't like giving these intervals to my athlete is I'm, I'm going to take that a step further and say you feel better if you do these intervals right, if you run into the woods and get ready to your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> these are not fun. And I'm actually, I, I get the sense you do not like this type of interval. I, I, I would love to dive into that just for even a couple minutes. Yeah, educate the North American listener as to why you don't like these, why these are not effective in your in your mind. That's the sense I got as well. I didn't say that I don't like them. No? Okay. okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm just, you know, um, I just struggle. Um, it's just difficult to talk to people about VO2max intervals um, because there's two there's two assumptions in here. One assumption that most people have when they hear VO2max intervals, they, they assume that this is the only way or the one way to increase your VO2max, which it isn't. 
Right. Um, and then the, then, then the second question is, and we had this running, uh, running up for this, uh, for this recording today, what is the intensity? What is the intensity that describes VO2max? And this is where, you know, there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding. And th therefore, I'm just very careful about these intervals because I first would like to understand what are we talking about here, right? right? Are we talking about the intensity, the power output, the energy turnover that equals VO2max? Or are we talking about an intensity at which you reach VO2max in any kind of incremental step test, REM test, all out test whatsoever, right? Like, is it, is it a power output associated with, with, with you recording your VO2max and whatever setting? Then we are linked in this definition, we are linked to the testing protocol, right? So that's my, that's my difficulty here. And then in terms of doing it, in terms of doing it, well, I have no direct offense against it. I'm a little bit biased here in terms of um, when you do these kind of intervals with professional athletes, and I have, I'm, I'm, I have to admit that um, obviously I'm biased here. My mind is more with this. That's no offense. It's just because that's what I did in the in in the in the past years. I mean, I've coached more amateurs beforehand, but in the in the in the recent past. And anyway, when you do these kind of intervals. Where you really go all out for four or five minutes with professional athletes, it's a very, very uncommon thing. And the, the, the possibility that you crack your athlete is quite high. I know that it's different uh, with amateur recreational athletes. And most likely, most people don't really go all out. Like they don't, maybe you only go to 90% or whatever of maximum. But that's why, yeah, that's why I'm a little bit careful with that, right? Uh, because the high intensity, and maxing out the duration is, to say the least, a difficult combination, I would say. Yeah. That's actually, and damn it, we're agreeing again, as I was hoping to have some, <laughs> a little bit of back and forth, which would have been fun. But um, the issue I have is, is I do agree with you. Most people can't get into the lab and do a VO2 max test. So when you talk to people about VO2 max power, uh, the, the common definition is it's your peak five-minute wattage. And if you think of it that way, anybody who has gone out and done a proper test all out five minutes, hit the highest power you can for, for five minutes, knows you're then dead for the next 20 minutes. Yeah, those are, those are pretty It awful. hurts. So to do that once will absolutely make you suffer. To then say, okay, now go do five by five of that, <laughs> nobody can do that. Now let's hear a clip from episode 134, the favorite workouts of Fast Talk All-Stars. Trevor, I know why you like this clip. It's because Joe Friel, the author of the Cyclist Training Bible, well-known, well extremely well-known coach, um, picked the same workout that you would have picked. And so he, let's, let's hear a little bit more about what that workout is. This kind of goes back to... The first episode we ever recorded with Joe Friel was about the, the cyclist training Bible. And I, I read the book in preparation for that episode. And, and my comment to Chris when he asked me my opinion of the book, I was like, it's kind of scary. If I was going to write a book about cycling training, this is pretty much it. We share a lot of the same viewpoints. And so I guess it's only appropriate that when we asked him his favorite workout, he immediately described what is also my favorite workout, which is these hill repeats. So 
I'm not sure what this says, except I'm, I, I have a huge amount of respect for Joe Friel, but really appreciate the fact that the intervals I love to do are the intervals he loves to do as well. All right, let's hear Joe's description. Yeah, I just did uh, uh, mine today, actually. Um, my favorite workout is, is hill repeats. Um, I like to do them relatively long. Um, you know, anywhere from, oh, say, six, seven minutes to 18, 20 minutes um, at about um, a little below 90% of FTP or even 100% of FTP on a relatively, um, you know, re- relatively steep hill, like a six, seven, eight percent grade. And I find that to be uh, enjoyable because I, I, I like the, the focus it requires. You're trying to maintain a given effort, given power output, a given heart rate, whatever you're using to, to regulate that, that, those intervals. And then uh, the nice thing about doing it indoors is you can make the recovery relatively short, which is the way it should be. It should be like, like the recovery should be perhaps one fourth as long as the preceding work interval. And that you can't do outdoors. When you're outdoors, you can't get back down the hill that fast. So consequently, right. indoors is really a great place to do that workout. So, so that's my favorite workout. The only other workout is the one I'll do tomorrow, which is my other favorite workout, is just to ride really easy. Just go out and smell the roses and have a great time. And that one I like doing on the road because I can enjoy the weather and, and uh, ride with my wife and have a conversation and so forth which is difficult to do when you only have one trainer indoors. Fair enough. So going back to the hill repeats, how many would you do? And I'm assuming that depends on the, the length of the climb. Um, no, well, it depends on, yeah, it depends on how long it takes you to climb the hill. But typically anywhere from about 20 to 40 minutes total uh, climbing time in the workout. Okay. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a good workout. When you're done with that, your legs are tired. So it's it's a it's a good session. And why would you do that workout? What are the benefits of it? Uh, primary benefit is improves lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold. If you want to think of it in terms of power, it improves FTP. Um, and it's also kind of one of those things that it's it's not so hard that it really hurts, but it's hard enough that you're on the verge of hurting. Uh, the entire time. So there's a little bit of suffering that goes on, but it's not nearly the suffering that you have in a, in a race situation. Um, and so I personally, I just like that effort. Um, I find it very rewarding when I get done with that session, knowing I've put in 20, 30, 40 minutes of, uh, of uh, relatively high intensity up around FTP. Um, it's just a good feeling. Good. And Final question about the workout is looking at the, the, the long-term training plan. Is there a particular time of year where you would use these intervals or can they be used at, at any point? They can be used at any point. What I would change is two things. Very early in the season, I would reduce the intensity to uh, maybe something like 15 watts below threshold. So it's more like a, like a three zone based on power free zone effort um, in the base period, early base period. And I would reduce the number of intervals. So we're talking about around 20 minutes or, or even slightly less, maybe as few as 15 minutes for a workout. And that, that's a pretty good workout for just maintaining um, 
upper intensity fitness of FTP. Then as the season progresses, we move into the late base period and into the, the build period and the workouts will become more, um, become more intense and, the, and gradually it also become longer in terms of total number of high intensity intervals you're doing. Chris, I know this was an episode when we were planning it that you were really excited about when we were going to talk about randoneering and ultra-endurance events. So we have a clip here that you were excited to put on this episode. Tell us about it. Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, I would have thought there's no way I'd be really even interested in this subject. But I, for, for, for many reasons, this was a clip, uh, favorite clip of mine. First, I have this this new interest in these types of things because they turn into ad adventurous uh, rides, experiences more so than just, it's not just a race, you know, it's, a, it's beyond that. But I think also for Fast Talk, it was just a new discipline and it opened a new door to a world that a lot of us think is a little bit of a black box, a bit of a mystery. So Matt Roy, Jose Bermudez, they both have such experience with this world that helped us understand it a little bit more, understand that in a lot of ways, it's not that much different um, than any other type of cycling. But at the same time, there are some uh, very significant differences. And, and both of these guys get into you know, the similarities and the differences, and it just opens people's eyes, hopefully, to a new genre. The guy who founded D2R2, the famous dirt uh, dirt road event in Western Mass, uh, this guy, Sandy Whittlesley, and he holds the record for Boston and Montreal, Boston, which is the PDP equivalent of yep. the U.S. when it was run, 1,200K. I think he did it in 44 hours and change, some, some insane number. He had, you know, old cat-eye halogen light with 2C batteries trying to peer his way through a rainy night in Vermont roads. And he told me how the guardrail turned into a giant snake. And he said, if it wasn't a snake, he probably would have continued heading towards it. So it, you know, his hallucination saved his life wow. in that context. This makes me want to ask you, Matt, tell us some strategies so that you don't allow yourself to get to this point, because this really does sound dangerous, potentially life-threatening. What have you learned over the years to stave off the urge to keep going? I would say there's a few approaches. And so I'll just give you an idea on the, the mental strategy and then maybe something about the sleep strategy. The mental strategy, I, I've always thought about breaking things up incrementally. So I, I've given you these examples of 100K, 200K, 400, 300 example. So 100K with stops, a lot of hills, gives, it takes four hours. Anybody can ride four hours. You get to the next control, you hit a reset button. That reset button is mental. You get full bottles, you get some fresh snacks, maybe a baguette, and you're starting a brand new ride. And the only thing you need to do for the next four hours is get from that checkpoint to the next checkpoint. And each time you get to a checkpoint, it is a full reset. And if you can trick your brain into believing that, then, then that's half the battle. Uh, Trevor, you mentioned the sort of emotional highs and lows and this whole spectrum. And, and that's, it. that's part of the beauty of, of ultra cycling and how you, 
how you respond to those. There isn't, it's not possible to ride 12 hours without having some emotional component. There's going to be a moment where it's terrible. And it's how you, how you address that moment to get to the other side of it that makes, that I think really brings the beauty to that sport. And for me, I've been able to compartmentalize it and say, um, I'm suffering, but I'm going to get to this checkpoint because that's only 45 minutes away from now if I stay at the speed. And when I get to that checkpoint, it's a new ride and I don't have to worry about those ghosts from 20 minutes ago. So that, that little compartmentalization is the key for me. And I even break it up even smaller. If I'm on a long, a long, miserable, steep climb, then the next telephone pole is my goal. And the one after that, and, and I might just be basic enough that those simple little things are enough distraction that I don't think about the clock or I don't think about the fact that I've been up since 2 a.m. or anything like that. So I compartmentalize. That's probably the first big thing. That's called chunking in the psychological realm. And that is a strategy for uh, that anybody could use really with 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 any length of event, whether it's just a climb and it's really hurting and it's it's only an hour in length, you can still break it up into small chunks like that. Same with the hour record on the track. You want to break that up into maybe it's eight minute segments or 10 minute segments and think of those as discrete pieces. And once you finish that, you reset and take on the next challenge. Yeah. And there's a, there are other little logistic things you can do. You can physically break your route up on your, on your uh, navigation device. You know, I, for transatlantic way, I, I set what were optimistic goals for days. And um, I had each day broken up into two Garmin files and I would, I would look at distance remaining and, you know, it was always fairly palatable. Oh, I can ride 118 miles. That's, I can do that. You know, you get to that, that end of that file and you start a new one and it's just less daunting. These don't, don't get, don't beat yourself up with a number, just make it palatable and you can cheat yourself. You can, you know, cheat your psyche by making it into these palatable chunks. There's all these little strategies. One, one thing I used to do for nutrition, which we can get into is I would set a, a countdown timer on a watch. And every time it would go off, I set it for like 50 minutes, five zero. And every 50 minutes it would go off and I would eat. And it's just, oh, there's my, there's my dinner bell. Uh, and it was just something I didn't have to think about. Just, just another little incremental component. Imagine, you could speak more to this, but imagine another thing. I mean, when we talk, or when I'm coaching an athlete and we're talking about a two-hour race, we want to do everything possible to make sure they don't bonk. If you bonk in that race, you're, you're done. When you're doing an event that's 12 hours or longer, bonking is pretty much an inevitability, probably a a few times in some of these longer events. It's it's actually learning how to push through it. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, that's me emphasizing the the utility of these breves building on each other. That's a perfect opportunity to make those mistakes is you, you can, you learn through your own, own errors in these and um, you, you can, you can build up your skill set by making these, these mistakes. Um, so I, I think my physiology is, is changing as I've done this for, um, this is 13 years now, I guess. Uh, yeah, 13 years of long distance stuff. 
that I, I feel like I need to, maybe it's because I'm getting older too, but I'm, I'm eating a lot less than I used to. And I can ride into the front end of a bonk and know that, and know that I can rescue it. Now, when you think about the kind of output I'm doing versus the kind of output someone's doing for two hours, it's scaled down quite a bit. You know, we're, we're averaging, I think PBT was, I think I averaged like 230 watts for, you know, 40, 44 hours of riding or something like that. I'm a hundred, uh, what am I? 145 pounds or so. Uh, so it's not like Herculean by any means. It's just a slow burn all day long. And you can feed that slow burn probably a little differently than you would do a, a two hour race athlete. So Chris, I know you and I both have a, a, a huge respect for Julie Emmerman. We both have, have worked with her, gone to races with her over the years. So you were very excited to get her on the show. And I think in, in this episode, she had a lot of great advice to give. So why don't you tell us a bit about uh, what she had to say? Yeah, this this episode on performance psychology is really a broad overview of that subject, but one of those episodes where there are so many little wonderful pieces of information that you can apply to your athletic life and really to personal life. Um, it's, you know, psychology is an immense topic. There's a lot of concepts within that that we go into in this episode, but Julie just has a way of choosing the right words. There's a lot of precision in what she does. She does this as an athlete, um, but she also does this as a practicing psychologist. And I love the way that she just um, chooses those words wisely to really explain some of these complex topics in digestible terms. So let's hear from Julie. Another phrase I like to use is wherever you go, there you are. So if somebody comes from a past that tends to, you know, if their history includes abuse, for example, then their self-talk might be a replication of that, you know, when they're telling themselves some really awful things like, you know, don't be ridiculous, just calm down, what's wrong with you, calm down, things like that. But that's not helpful. That's just creating more constriction internally, more tension. And that is not what that person needs at that time. Then they're just feeling ashamed because they are feeling stressed. And that's, again, not helpful. So that's not a good pathway. Um, a better pathway would be to teach that person about a those abusive types of experiences and what mm -hmm. what that can lead a person to feel in terms of their self esteem, self agency, regulation of their own emotions, and then helping them. Um, I work with adults, so I'm referencing adults in this situation, sure, but helping sure. them learn how to self modulate and talk to themselves in a way that's more effective. So I'm gonna bring up one other study, just something to that might add to the conversation a little bit. This is one I've always loved. Um, this was from 2010, written by a Jorni Renan of the University of Barcelona. But it was a study on self-talk in tennis players. And one of the things when they were looking at what is beneficial self-talk, they found that it was the type of self-talk that shifted the attention from being um, very outcome focused, being much more execution focused. Mm -hmm. The outcome being, you just sit there going, "I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, lose," or I'm, it's also, "I got to win, I got to win, I got to win." Shifting actually the self talk more to talking about, well, how do I get my gear ready? What is my strategy? What am I going to be doing in the first set? What am I going to be doing in the second set? But yeah, it's a, it's a, goes back to a conversation we had on a previous episode about task oriented versus goal oriented, and, and maybe that's. To remind folks out there that haven't listened to that episode, Julie, could you just 
define those two terms quickly to help people understand right. the context here. Well, I'm not familiar with this study specifically, but it does sound like the focus is being brought from outcome to process. And when people are focused exclusively or too heavily on the outcome, what you often find is that then their behavior and their thoughts are fear-based because they're like, well, what if I don't win? What if I don't win? What if I lose? Coming from a fear-based perspective is never sustainable or an effective way to manage a pressure situation. Again, it can be in a short-term way, but it is not sustainable and it is not an enjoyable way to go through a career. Right. So re reworking some of that to help that person come from a strength-based perspective would then include things like, what are the process goals that you need to really be focused on and reminding yourself of in order to give yourself the best chance of succeeding here? And then the self-talk becomes around, okay, you know, I need to play aggressively. I need to do this. I need to do that. And creating, I also work with athletes to help them assess their own performances so that they know, I mean, especially at the professional level, you know when you are or are not giving your all. And I often, you know, I'll debrief with people and say, okay, tell me, you know, how did you accomplish those process goals? It doesn't matter what the score was. Tell me what the, tell me how well you achieved X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Right. And let's figure out if there were obstacles, let's work with those obstacles so that we can keep making progress. What about visualization? Another big topic. Yeah, it's a big topic. I never use the term visualization. Actually, I prefer imagery. Okay. Because when I work with an athlete around imagery and preparing for an event, I try to, well, first and foremost, what it would look like is having that person sit in a quiet space, whether they're sitting or lying down, closing their eyes. It relies on some visualization, but it's not exclusive to visualization. But I will have them picture in their mind we could start from like the day before the event when they're at registration, maybe getting nervous or whatever the situation might be, or we may start with the warm up the next day. We'll, we'll discuss that and figure out where, where's the starting point. And then mm -hmm. we will go through and try to make as alive as possible, all the kinesthetic elements that we can so that that person really feels like they are there. Mm -hmm. And then we will go through in detail, you know, what is, if you're a triathlete, you know, picturing yourself, in the water, what does it feel like? Oh, you just got kicked in the face, you know what? Or, or you know, whatever the situation situation may be, it's cold, it's raining, whatever it is. Trying to incorporate as many different elements as possible, and imagining what it would look like for them to carry out their best swim. What do they need to do to execute their very best swim, and to see themselves, but also feel it? You know, really, like it's a very alive exercise you hope it's immersive in that way yeah like they're feeling and seeing right. themselves in that place not just right it's not a casual thing right and again it goes back to something we started with it's not just like an i don't want it to be an intellectual exercise i want them to feel mm -hmm. as much as they can mm -hmm. so we'll do that and we'll do like a run through of you know when things are running pretty smoothly and then we will also go through and bring in different elements that could be derailing you know oh you're a triathlete and you're doing an Ironman you just got a flat or you know you're noticing that you're dehydrated or this or that or it's really windy and um, things to help them practice what it will be like so that again we're rehearsing so that when and when they're there it might not be that we've covered the exact thing that actually unfolds in the race itself but they've been preparing for when things don't go perfectly and they can handle that adversity and hopefully move on as best they can. That was another episode of Fast Talk. That was the final episode of Fast Talk in the year 2020. 
Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com and discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For the many exceptional guests we've been able to bring to you today, to all of the guests that have appeared in all of our 2020 episodes, and to my tireless co-host, Coach Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.